Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good Sabbath afternoon, everyone. Good to be back together again. Welcome, of course, to Alex and Joanna. Hard to believe we are 160 days until Passover. We'll be counting them down every week. If you would, if you turn with me to Philippians 1 as we begin. Philippians has been a letter we've studied here locally over the last number of years and have come to some deeper understanding. Pastor Adrian covered it at the feast and the Bible study. And we covered that same Bible study last week. I want to begin there because as we exited the feast, part of our mandate was to go back to our congregations and build and move forward. And part of that comes from chapter 1 and verse 27, which was one of the key texts from that study. And for those of you who may be listening to this or on, on, on audio or may have not had the opportunity to hear the full Bible study, uh, not just the one at the feast, but there's a series of four Bible studies that Pastor Adrian did that is available on the cgi.org backslash webcast website, which goes into much deeper detail than we can go into today or even, in fact, than he went into in his Bible study on the evening of the last great day. But the key text here, as he mentioned to us in Philippians 1, verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. As we recall, this letter is to the Philippian congregation. This is not to an individual or sets of individuals, or to be read by inserting your personal name, but this is to a congregation. And that is one of the the deeper understandings we've come to in recent years about this particular epistle. And we can see that, as you'll recall, moving forward in the letter to chapter 2, in verse 12, where Paul continues, Therefore, chapter 2 and verse 12, my beloved, speaking to the entire congregation, which as you'll recall, you can see, back in the very introductory verse where he wrote to all the saints who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. Therefore, my beloved, the beloved congregation in Philippi, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And we were mandated at the feast, now come home and Let's move our congregations forward. And how the importance of being part of the congregation and how behavior in the body is reviewed and judged by God, that he does this through Scripture congregationally. We have covered that through the churches in Revelation. We can cover it with seemingly every, every one of these letters to Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae. And how we... As Paul mentions here to the Philippians, how our actions and how we interact with each other must always reflect the gospel of Christ. What we do, how we speak to each other, how we interact must always reflect the gospel of Christ, or else we bring dishonor to him and to God. And as a community here, this must always be our aim, to continue to move forward to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that that gospel means and and all that it endeavors and all that it tries to do and all that it, it teaches us. Recently, over the last little while, I've been reading the book of Job for a myriad of reasons it's been helping me. And I'm finding it fascinating to, to read through the book of Job 
and line it up with these lessons that we're learning from the book of Philippians. How do we continue moving forward as a congregation? How do we come back as congregations and move forward to, in the spirit of and to promote the gospel of Christ? How do we help each other through trials that will sure every year we all go through trials? And as a congregation, we help each other through these trials. How do we help each other through the trials this next year, the fall of the, the years to come, as events take place, as we, of, we of all people have been reading and, and being made aware of these things? How do we help each other through these trials that will beset us? Let's go back to the book of Job. And as we do, I would like to remind you of a sermon that was given here back in our early, early, early infancy, in two, early 2013, it was called Decoding the Book of Job. Many of you may have not heard that. Um, it is on our website. and I, uh, I pray I make myself a note that I will include that in the bulletin this week uh, just as a reference point. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message by Pastor Adrian, Decoding the Book of Job. It is not my intent here to go through all of the detail that he went through in that message. It, it, was, a, it was a very in-depth look into the characters, the, the, the mindset of the different characters, all that they represented. We'll touch on it a little bit here, uh, but don't, uh, this, this message here is not meant to, to uh, repeat what he said or to, to even touch on what he said. I'd, I'd like for what he said to, to stand on its own, and it goes into very, very great depth. And it showed us that this book is not about human suffering, but this book is about Job's journey from being blameless, falling into a state of self-righteousness, and then through true humbling repentance and developing an even greater and deeper relationship and an in-depth understanding and appreciation of who God is and who Job himself was. Job learned much more about who God was and, and, and much more about who he was through this process that Job was through. And it was an opportunity, as was mentioned in that message, for Job to reflect on why he serves God. So, again, take some time to, to go back. It's on our Burlington website. You just scroll down to the bottom of the sermons page, down to 2013, and it's called Decoding the Book of Job. And, again, my purpose here is not to recreate this study. I would like to take a look at certain parts of the book of Job and relate it to our mandate from the feast to come back and move forward as a congregation and, and to become a, 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 a better congregation, to come up, become a more serviceable congregation for God in light of what we read here in Job. So again, we're not going to, we'll leave the storyline alone. We're, we are very familiar with the storyline of Satan's attacks on Job and the, the wager between God, the seeming wager between God and Satan. Um, these are well documented, not only in the in scriptures here, but in that message I, I encourage you to look at. Let's begin by going to Job chapter 2 and verse 11. What I'd like to do is take a look at Job's three friends. Job chapter 2 and verse 11 says, now when Job's three friends heard all of this adversity that had come down on him, and you can read that adversity in the first two chapters of Job, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. So Job has these three friends, his three Arabian friends. And again, that's something I'll touch on a little bit, but Pastor Adrian goes into much, much more depth than I, I have time to hear. But here these three friends are Arabic in, in upbringing. So they have a different philosophy from Job, an Israelite, and later on we see Elihu, who also was a member of the covenant community. But they came to seemingly mourn with him. But Job, as you may recall from that message, or you can, can 
go through the, the, some of the, the writings here in Job, and we won't take time to do that. Job was a, a blameless man. He was a righteous man. But what we come to find out is that Job was righteous because he lived in fear of God. He was not, he was not confident in his own righteousness. He was scared to let God down. And we see that covered in a couple of passages. We won't take time there today. I encourage you to go back and listen to Pastor Adrian's message. His righteousness was a vantage point of fear. Despite being blameless, we find out that this, his, his, his righteousness was a point of being scared. So Satan now takes these three Arabic friends and uses their, their philosophy of being of, of present-oriented, and we'll get into that here in a little bit, to influence Job and drive him towards self-righteousness. That's part of the message that, that Pastor Adrian covered. Let's go to Job 32. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of jumping around here a little bit. We're going to settle down here and, and get into the point of the message here. Job 32. So we have these three friends that now come to comfort Job. They spend a week in silence. And then over the course of three sets of dialogues, they take their, their philosophy and they start hammering away at Job. And in essence, what they're telling him, and we're going to get some examples here, is that he brought this on himself through sin. That all of these trials are because he did something wrong. And that's what sets up this whole intercourse between Job and his three friends. We now get to the end of their three exchanges. We're just jumping ahead for a minute. And we pick it up in chapter 32 and in verse 1. So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. They had run out of things to say. Then the wrath of Elihu, all of a sudden this fourth gentleman, Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzzite of the family of Ram, who if you... Uh, go back, is part of the covenant community, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they found no, no answer and yet had condemned Job. And then for now, let's drop down to verse 6. So Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid and dared not to declare my opinion to you. I said age should speak and a multitude of years should teach wisdom. And again, a lot of this is covered in Pastor Adrian's message. He, he goes into some of the, the, the historical uh, background of what, of what the, the uh, community was like back then and how age took, took precedence in, in the order of, 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 of who spoke first. So I'll leave that there for you to listen to. I said age should speak, and a multitude of years should teach wisdom, but there is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I also would declare my opinion. Indeed, I waited for your words, and I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I paid close attention to you, and surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words. Lest you say, we have found wisdom... God will vanquish him, not man. Now he has not directed his words against me, so I will not answer him with your words. Elihu here spends time listening to all of this exchange and is flabbergasted at what he's heard. What I'd like to talk about today is what sets them apart. What did they say to try to help Job through versus what did Elihu say? And what can we learn as a congregation going forward, helping each other through trials, getting, making it through all that, that Satan will beset us with. What did Elihu say? What upset him so much about what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar said? And what did he have to say? And what can we learn about working with each other? And again, I go back to the message that that uh, decoding the book of Job, which will go into much more greater depth of what these three gentlemen were, their, his, their, their history, where they were from, what that means uh, from a mindset. But we're, gonna, we're going to start first with his three friends. Uh, Job chapter 4. And again, as you'll hear when you listen to that message, you'll, you'll get the, the whole framework of this book and how 
There were three sets of dialogues between Job and the three friends back and forth three times until finally they stopped and Elihu spoke up. Once Elihu got through what he was speaking, God then spoke up. And then we get to where we heard Caitlin read the conclusion of the story. But let's go back to and just get a glimpse of what had upset Elihu with what he was hearing. So Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4. Let's pick it up in verse 2. If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? Eliphaz is talking to Job. Surely you have instructed, but who can withhold himself from speaking? Surely you have instructed many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. But now it comes upon you, and you are weary. It touches you, and you are troubled. Is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember who, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent. Whoever perished being innocent. Or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of these young lions are broken. The old lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. One thing to keep in mind is I mentioned their, their Arabic culture. Part of what they, they believed was God punishes for sin. That any bad stuff that happens to us is a result of what we deserve. So as Job is trying to come to grips with this trial that he's going through, the first thing his friend says to him is, well, obviously you sinned. Obviously you've, you've dropped the ball. But what Scripture tells us is, is Job was a blameless guy. Not perfect, but blameless on the right track, moving forward for God, a member of the covenant community, and living a decent, godly life. And all of a sudden, he's beset by all of these catastrophes. And the first thing his friend said was, you sinned. And you've, you've sinned major, because God would never do this. Now, of course... From the reader's standpoint, as you're looking through this, we know God's not doing anything here. It is Satan doing this. God allows Satan to do this. He's given him permission. But God is not actually doing anything. But here, Eliphaz, in trying to work with Job, is saying, clearly, clearly this is on you. Clearly you have sinned, and you have to figure this out so that you can get right, and you can receive all your, your physical blessings back. Job 15, let's go see what Eliphaz says later on. Job 15, verse 17. I will tell you, hear me, what I have seen, what I, have seen I will declare. What wise men have told, not hiding anything received from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no alien passed among them. The wicked man writhes with pain all his days, and the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. Dreadful sounds are in his ears, and prosperity the destroyer comes upon him. And he does not believe that he will return from darkness, for a sword is waiting for him. So again, this entire mindset of, you've got to figure this out, Job. You've obviously been, you've obvi- you're obviously in a deep state of sin because of all that God is doing to you. Bildad. Let's go and check out a couple of items for Bildad here. Job chapter 8. The second friend. Again, in, in we don't, I, I, I don't have time to go through and back and forth with in the depth that Pastor Adrian did, so please do take the time to, to augment this, this message by, by listening to that one. Job chapter 8. Verse 1, then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you speak these things, and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? Does God subvert judgment? This God you're talking about, 
he, he must be punishing you for your sin. That's what God does. If, you're, if you are under this type of trial, it must be for sin. Or does God subvert judgment or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. If, if you were in a good state, if you, were, if you have not been living a life of sin, would this be happening to you? Would you be inflicted with all this trial? That was their mindset. And that was what they were trying to work with Job and surround him with and comfort him, use quotation marks, with that, that help. Though your beginning was small, your latter end would increase abundantly. For inquire, please, of the former agent, consider the things discovered by their fathers. Again, referencing back to their, the, the, the mindset that, that their culture taught them. For we were born yesterday and know nothing because our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words from their heart? But again, here, inflicting upon Job the concept that God is about punishment and God is about retribution. Because you have sinned, God is inflicting you with all of these, these punishments. Let's go to Job 20. Job 20. Job 20 and verse 1. We come upon an example here of Zophar. The third friend. Then Zophar the Namathite, Job 20 verse 1, answered and said, Therefore, my anxious thoughts make me answer because of the turmoil within me. I have heard the rebuke that reproaches me, and the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. Do you not know this of old, since man was placed on the earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and that the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment? And though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens and his head reaches to the clouds, yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. Yes, he will be chased away like the vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place behold him any more. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will restore the wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. So again, pointing Job to the fact that if he wasn't wicked, he wouldn't be going through this. So the message these three friends, using the term loosely, are telling him is clearly you've sinned. Clearly you're in a state of deep sin. The blameless Job, as scripture tells us at the beginning of the story. And that this is retribution from God for your past sins. Just say sorry, get right with him, and he'll stop. He, he blesses those who are, who, are, uh, who are not hypocrites, and he will restore all of your wealth to you. Their philosophy, and we've talk, we talked about this at the feast, their philosophy, as you can see, is present-oriented. Is present-oriented. You've sinned. Therefore, you're going through this trial. God is a God of retribution. God only sees now. And he is all about hurting you now because you hurt him through sin. That is the, the concept that they, were, that they were helping Job try and understand. Your pain will stop when you say sorry. Because God is present oriented. And if you are suffering, it's because God is mad at you. When we consider Job, and again pointing back to that previous message, when you go through that again, you'll see, and we don't have time here, but Pastor Adrian does a great job going through Job's understanding of God. As a member of the covenant community, as an, as an Israelite, a part, separate, a completely different mindset than these three folks who were not of the covenant community. He understood there was a God. He understood that there was an advocate for him and that he was a member of the covenant community. And through their, but through their accusations, Satan, of course, we know Satan is completely behind this. This is not God at all. We, 
we have the, the fortune of reading the beginning of the story and seeing that this was Satan behind all of this. And God, for whatever reason, and we'll get to that reason, God was allowing Satan to do this, but God wasn't behind this. Through their accusations of God and of Job, so they were accusing God of being a vengeful God of retribution, and they were also accusing Job of being this sinful, full-of-sin man who had earned all of these, these trials. Job allows them to bring him to the point of presenting a defense against God. This present-orientedness that they had talked to Job about allowed Job to only see the present. And Job was all about, but I didn't do anything. I can go back and, God, I, I, I know your law, and I sure I've stumbled a little bit, but I haven't sinned. I'm, I'm not, I don't, not living a state of, of, of iniquity or transgression that has earned this. So why, why am I going through this? If, if you are this God of retribution, allow me to give a defense of myself here because I didn't do anything wrong. So their mindset, their help, has taken Job off of what he thought his understanding of God was and brings him into the present to say, well, I didn't do anything. What are you doing? At least give me a chance to defend myself. If we're going to go through this, allow me to defend myself. They were focused on his past. So God's punishment must be a reflection of your past. So you thought you were living a blameless life, but you, you couldn't be because God wouldn't do this to you if you were blameless. How would you counsel Job through this, the, these issues? If you were part of Job's circle of friends and he was a good guy, a blameless guy, and all of a sudden he had all of these, these calamities hit him where his family was, was killed, he was completely covered in, 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 in the boils and all that we know that he lost. Here's where we go to Elihu, chapter 32. In light of all of that, we now have this young man sitting quietly, listening to these foreigners convey their philosophy to Job. And it doesn't add up to what they understand the God of Israel to be. So in chapter 32, we go back to verse 6. So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I'm very young in years and you are very old. Therefore I was afraid and dared not to declare my opinion to you. I thought, you know what? You're older than me. You should speak first. You're older than me. You should naturally have more wisdom than me. So I will let you speak. A multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. We can see his understanding of God is far different from the, the understanding of these other three friends. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Therefore, listen to me, and I will declare my opinion. Indeed, I waited for your words, listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. So he is standing up and saying, listen, I've heard everything you have to say, and it is completely way off base. So now that you've had your turn, let me have my turn. Let me tell you about the God that I serve. Let me tell you about the God that Job and I share as covenant people. So let's go through, for the next few minutes, some of what Elihu has to say. Let's go to chapter 33, verse 8. And again, there's so much more. And, and take the time to go through these in detail. You'll see, you'll see the difference in their mindset for um, Elihu, even verse Verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. There's a, here's a, a young man who understands the truth. But down to verse 8, 
Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words, saying, I am pure without transgression. I am innocent, and there is no, no iniquity in me. Yet he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks, and he watches all of my paths. Look, in this you are not righteous. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. So after hearing what you're saying, you're innocent. You're innocent. They're talking about his past. Elihu is saying, I don't care about your past. You may have been innocent, but the what you're doing now and how you're talking about God and reflecting God, now you're sinning. So what, you were blameless. You were fine. But listening to this mindset of these guys and being so present focused on, I was innocent. I, I, I didn't do any of this stuff. He's saying, now you're sinning. Now you're reflecting God in a wrong light. Forget the past. Ignore that. Now, now let's look here. Look, in this, you are, in this you are not righteous. I will answer you, God is greater than man. Verse 14. For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. In a dream... In a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. In order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man, he keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. You're talking about a God who seeks retribution. And my God gives us every chance, doesn't want retribution. He he holds back from putting souls in the pit. He doesn't want life perishing by the sword. This is, this is the God that I serve. He is future-oriented. His mindset is about preserving people. Verse 29. Behold, God works all these things. Twice, in fact, three times of the man. This is not a God that is looking and, and seeking to, to have retribution. This is a God that says twice, in fact, three times, to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of life. This is a God that is future-oriented. You, Job, are being surrounded by these friends who are so present-oriented. All, they're worried, all you're worried about is defending yourself. Here, and there's, now you're starting to get off track, Job. Now you're completely lost your concept of who God is. The God that they serve was future-oriented. He was about helping people, for sure. Chapter 34. Another thing that Elihu was pointing out to, to Job. Hear my words, you wise men. Give ear to my, verse 2, give ear to me, you who have knowledge, for the ear, te- ear te- tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose justice for ourselves, and let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. Let us know among ourselves what is good. Who defines what good is? Job is saying, I've spent my life being good, and all of a sudden I'm I'm being punished for it. Verse 10, therefore listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness, and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. So Job's mindset here was from a a, a present tense point of view of self-defense. So if Job is right then God must be wrong. And Elihu is saying, who defines what good is? God defines what good is. God can't be, God can't be wrong. God is good. God is just. God is righteous. God is perfect. So let's step back, Job, in all of your, your confusion. And who determines what good is? God determines what good is. Verse 34. Men of understanding say to me, wise men who listen to me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without wisdom. Oh, that Job were tried to the utmost because his answers are like those of wicked men. 
For he adds rebellion to his sin, and he claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. This confusion that Job got into with believing that God was this this God-seeking retribution and not being able to match it up against his blameless life now calls God's integrity into question. And what Elihu is saying here is, now we're crossing a line here, Job. Now we're crossing a line into where now you were blameless, but now you're crossing a line into rebel because we don't, we cannot cast, we cannot tell God how God is to act. That's that, that's not part of what we do. And as he he is going through here talking about God's justice, he's saying these evils can't be happening to you and they can't be from God. If in fact you're blameless and you've lived a, you've lived a good life, these can't be from God. God doesn't seek retribution to punish the way these friends are trying to tell you that he does. So we're attributing false characteristics to God. Chapter 35, we'll see a little bit more of what Elihu is is trying to talk to Job about. Now we get into confronting Job's perception of himself. Because Job was Job was falling into this present present oriented state of I've done I can't figure this out I've done nothing wrong. Moreover, Elihu chapter chapter thirty five verse one answered and said, "Do you think this is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned?" If I answer you and your companions with you, look to the heavens and see, and behold the clouds, they are higher than you. If you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a man such as you, and your righteousness a son of man. Big deal. You did nothing wrong. How does that affect God at all? God in his glory, how does that affect God? Is God less of God because you happen to be innocent? Is God, is God affected because you happen to be righteous? Either way, big deal. Focusing on the self, being present-oriented, how does that affect God at all? God in his magnificence, all that God is, so you're innocent, so you're guilty, big deal. How does, that, how does that at all affect God sitting on his perch, sitting on his throne? He's not lessened one way or the other by something we do in that respect. He's still God. He is still eternal. He is still the King of kings and Lord of lords. How does this affect him? What do, what do you give him by being righteous? What do you accomplish if you sin against him? How does that affect God? We know God has emotion, and it affects him because he doesn't want his creation sinning. But it doesn't make God less God. It doesn't make him less God. Verse 9, because of the multitude of oppressions that they cry out, they cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth, and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? We only cry out when we're in trouble. Where is this glory for God? Because he's the creator. Where is this, where is this God who is, who is my, I'm, I'm out here in, in his beautiful creation, and I just cry out because, I cry out to him because he is my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth, who makes us wiser than the birds of heaven. No one cries out looking for God's presence in their lives until they're in trouble. Everyone claims to speak for God. He's talking about his friends here. These friends are claiming to speak for God, but they never actually reach out and make him their God. They attribute characteristics that they think he should have based on their mindset, but they're not following him. They're not, they're not worshiping him. They're not seeing him as creator. And you're taking all of their philosophy, and it's affecting you, and now you're attributing their mindset upon God. Chapter 36. 
Behold, verse 5, behold, God is mighty and despises no one. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He is, God is almighty. God is perfectly just. He is perfectly righteous and perfectly loving. He, verse 6, he does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings, for he has seated them forever. Again, Elihu has this future-orientedness that he understands as a part of the covenant people. He has this concept of, of this foreverness that he talks about here. Stuff that, obviously, through scripture and, and, and looking back, we have a deeper understanding of what he was talking about. But Elihu here has this concept of this foreverness, of the, comf- of the potential of the covenant people. Verse 8 and, they are ba- and if they are bound in fetters, held in the cords of affliction, then he tells them their work and their transgression, that they have acted defiantly. He also opens their ear to instruction and commands that they turn from iniquity. And if they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword, and they shall die without knowledge." He uses trials to help perfect us. If they are bound, back to verse 8, if they are bound in fetters and held in the cords of afflictions, and he tells them their work and their transgressions, that they have acted defiantly. Here he's telling Job that perhaps these trials, God is going to use to make you better. God is going to take what Satan is doing, this knowing what's going on in the background. And he's going to help make you better. Look at verse 16. Indeed, he would have brought you out of dire distress into a broad place where there is no restraint. And what is set on your table would be full of richness. But you are filled with the judgment due the wicked, and judgment and justice take hold of you. God wants to be good to you. But you are so caught up, Job, in your own predicament that you're not yet ready for the goodness of God. You're not yet ready for the goodness of God. So take a step back and realize who you are worshiping. Realize who this, who this great God is. And in your, your presentness, your, your present orientedness of trying to defend yourself, realize that you are casting dispersions upon, upon God Almighty, that he, is not, he isn't who you are saying he is. Verse 24. Remember to magnify his work, of which men have sung. Everyone has seen it, and man looks on it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we do not know him, nor can, we, can number the, nor can the number of his years be discovered. For he draws up drops of water, which distill as rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. Indeed, can anyone understand the spreading of clouds, the thunder of his canopy, Look, he scatters his light upon it and covers the depths of the sea. And he continues. How can we speak, Elihu is telling Job and his friends, so dogmatically about his intentions when we hardly know who he is? He is this great, magnificent God that we only know this much about. So how can we, how can we cast upon him what we think he's doing because of our present-mindedness. Our actions and our words must bring glory to God. Remember to magnify his work, verse 24, of which men have sung. When we speak about God, it must be out of glory and magnificence for the greatness that God is. Chapter 37, verse 1. He continues, At this also my heart trembles, and leaps from its place when I consider all that God is and his perfection and his greatness and his, his perfectness in justice, perfectness in righteousness, perfectness in love. Hear attentively the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth, and he sends it forth from the, under the whole heaven, his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it, a voice roars, his thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain them when his voice is heard. God thunders marvelously with his voice, and he does great things which we cannot comprehend. We, we, we only know a little bit about God, but all that we know should cause us to 
Here he uses the word tremble. Go back to what we talked about, that Job initially was righteous out of fear. Here, here, Elihu was saying, my heart trembles at the power of God, but not out of terror, but out of awe. I wish to know more about him. I wish to know more about him. He is so great. Just the little bit that we can see brings us to awe. And considering all that awe that we should feel, how can you, Job, set apart to go up and, and sit in his, in his courtroom and try to defend yourself? Verse 14. More examples of God's greatness. Listen to this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know when God dispatches them and causes the light of his cloud to shine? I hear the, there's this meteor shower for last night, tonight, and tomorrow night for, the, for, for three nights. If you go out into the country, there's going to be these 30 meteor showers a, a, a night. I, I don't remember what it's called. I saw, saw it out on the news this morning. This is the greatness of God that, that, we, that we live for. Do you know, verse 16, how the clouds are balanced? Those wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Why are your garments hot when he quiets the earth by the south wind? With him have you spread out the skies, strong as a cast metal mirror? Again, these, these, the greatness of God should continue to confound us and want us knowing more, want us worshiping him more. Verse 20, should he be told that I wish to speak? Should he be told that I wish to speak? Where do I get off telling God what he owes me? So you, didn't, so you spent a life, a, a life of blameless. Where does that leave you wanting to defend yourself against this magnificent, glorious God? He owes you the opportunity to come before him and speak. Clearly, what we see here from Elihu versus these three friends are the difference in their schools of thought, the present-mindedness that, well, clearly, clearly you weren't blameless at all. Clearly you've lived a life full of iniquity because there's no possible way a God would not... Would, would do this to you without, without justice, that you deserve this. Versus Elihu saying, listen, forget about it. Let's look forward. Use this as an opportunity to get to understand God better, and to appreciate him and to worship him. You, you sinned, maybe you didn't sin. It doesn't really matter. Pick up, get up, and let's start moving forward. And let's be future-oriented. Let's, let's appreciate this great God that we serve. We see these differences in their schools of thought. And how Job allowed that present-mindedness to get inside of him and affect his outlook on God and affect the, how, he, how he perceived who God was. Let's go to Philippians 1 again. And again, there's so much more to the book of Job that, that today simply wouldn't, doesn't permit, which is why I point you back to that previous message, which goes into far greater depth than I could today. Back to Philippians 1. And let's reread what we read at the beginning. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. We have a different mindset. We are future-oriented. We are future-oriented. And our mindset must be about the great God that we serve and this amazing gospel that he and his son have given to us that must drive everything that we do, that we must be so gospel-oriented and future-oriented that everything we do reflects that. We, in the Bible study, went to Philippians 4. Let's go there. And in light of all of what we've read of in Job, Let's consider Paul's admonition to the congregation here in Philippians 4. I implore, verse 2, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. 
And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Like Elihu, Paul is telling them to be future-oriented. To be future-oriented. Don't split them up. Don't take sides. Don't try and determine who's right, because it's not about now. It's about the future. It's about the future-orientedness. Don't determine who may have been wronged, who might have been right. From the congregation's perspective, this is Paul, the apostle, talking to the congregation. He's saying it is our duty to help these two ladies move forward from whatever came between them. It doesn't matter what came between them. Help them move forward so that the congregation can be healthy and bring glory and honor to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this happens from time to time through trials, through through weaknesses that Satan tries to exploit. Healthy congregations keep the focus moving forward. Addressing issues, making amends, becoming of one mind again, and focusing on the gospel of Christ. How our conduct as a body reflects that gospel. And we see here the future-mindedness of Paul as he is saying, listen, let's, let's let's move them forward here. Let's go back to Job 42. Job 42. Job finally gets the message, as we well know. As Caitlin read, that one of the most well-known passages of Job, he finally gets the message. Verse 1 of 40, chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Brother Larry in his opening prayer, prayed that God would make us into the servants that he needs. Job finally gets the message here. He was no longer worried about his past goodness or his perceived wrongdoing. What he says here is, I had heard of you, past tense, by the hearing of my ear. Now my eye sees you. I I have a deeper understanding of who you are. And in the presence, in, 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 my pre- in today, I see you better than I saw you before. I'm not worried about the past. I'm not worried any longer about my perceived wrongdoing or my, or my defensible goodness. This is not about me anymore. This is about you, God. How do I see you? How do I glorify you? How are my actions reflecting that glory so that others that we have come in contact with, have right perceptions of you, not aversion distorted by this world's misguided views of what is right and what is wrong and what God should be or what God isn't. I see you now, and I get it, and I see who you are, and it has nothing to do with me but has everything to do with you. Job here went from living a blameless life for all the wrong reasons, out of fear and terror, to seeing God for who he really is, and in the process, seeing himself for who he really was. A man, imperfect, yet part of the covenant people, needing to continue to become a better child of God so he could help others do the same. As we conclude, let's look at the last part of Job here, because there's something interesting here. And as we move forward together, and as we help each other through our trials, and and I know I have been the, the, the help of through trials in, in my past. And we will continue to help each other through trials. Small trials, big trials, all of, all of these things we will help each other through. We need to, as we do that, we need to keep each other future-oriented, future-focused. It is when we get present-focused that we get sidetracked. We need to be future-focused. Future and let's look at these corrections here. So we see here in verse 7 that Job's three friends, in verse 7, And so it was, 
after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Job, as we read him say, now my eye sees you. He had, he had a better concept of God and was able to convey that concept. Here, the three friends conveyed false concepts about God. And we see that here. So they were, the, they were punished here by God. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord commanded them. For the Lord had accepted Job. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Now we get into Job and the the end result for Job. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had he had found he developed a much deeper concept and understanding of who God really was and his place. For he had fourteen thousand sheep, and it goes through we don't need to list that. He had seven sons and daughters, verse th- and three daughters, verse thirteen, and he called the name of the first Jeremiah, uh, the second Keziah, the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. What is missing here? There's no mention of Elihu. Elihu's not mentioned. I wonder why. And I, and I, I, I want, I, I, I want I, in studying this, Elihu was the pivot point here. God used Elihu as the pivot point. He was the one that quietly sat back and listened to the nonsense. And then once it was his turn, stepped up and told them they were way off course here. They were way too present-oriented. They didn't understand God as God as God. And Job was getting caught up in, in these otherworldliness ideas of God. But there's no mention of Elihu at all here. Not at all. Let's go to Romans 12. Here's a thought. Just a thought. And something to consider in the body of Christ as we work through trials of the future. Whether it be small little trials, bigger trials, whether it be trials inflicted upon the entire body. As we help each other through. And we remember that our conduct and our speech must be gospel oriented. Focusing on God. Being future oriented. Making sure we, we keep our mindsets off of the present and keeping them on the future. I beseech you, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves, your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is what Elihu did. He sacrificed himself. He presented himself. He presented God the way he saw God. He, we read here that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. This is what Elihu got Job to understand. But do you see what Paul calls this? It was his reasonable service. It doesn't. It doesn't require or deserve mention in Scripture. This is what we do. We help each other through. So Elihu is not mentioned because you know what? All he did was do his job. All he did was do his job. As a member of the covenant community, he merely did what was expected of him. He pointed Job back to God. He refocused Job on being future-oriented. He refocused Job, Job in his way on the gospel of Christ. The glory is about God and his greatness. 
Elihu, through all of his profound wisdom, was too just a man and a member of the community trying to help his brother refocus on God, his greatness, and his glory. And it was just his reasonable service. He just did his job. And as we move forward, as we, as we move forward towards the return of Christ and prepare for anything that may come our way, this is how we need to help each other through, is keep ourselves, you know what, I may, I may need your help one day. It may, it may affect me to where my mindset gets off a little bit. Just refocus me. Help me focus on God. And I'll do the same to you. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.